0: Well, good evening, everyone. And uh, as I said, I'm Simon. A number of you I don't recognize. And uh, so, welcome if you're here for the first time. And sorry if you've been coming for years and uh, we've never spoken. I'm one of the ministers here. I've been here for 22 years, man and boy. And um, one of the associate vicars. For seven years, I was a chaplain. Uh, in the university and attached to this church, and the last 15 or so I've just been one of the ministers. Not just, thank God I've been one of them. And, well, I'm delighted to kick off this series this evening. If you've got a Bible, please do keep it open at Philippians chapter 2. And I just want to tease out in a bit three... um, short, simple, but significant, I think, points here on our theme. So I don't know whether you know, whether you've seen it advertised, but today we're starting a new series on the so-called seven deadly sins, or the seven deadly vices and the seven godly virtues. Seven vices and seven virtues, and presumably we're going to be looking at it for the next seven weeks. About 2,500 years ago in Greece, philosophers were the kind of hipsters of the day. And uh, this is absolutely true. They used to hang around and have serious discussions about beards and about the length of their hair. And uh, Socrates, who was the father of Greek philosophy, it is said, there's there's an account from Um, concurrent with his life 2,500 years ago, that he was unable to grow a beard, and so he used to pick up shavings of hair in a barber's and glue them on. Don't know how true that is, but that's what you find in a little bit of ancient philosophy. And then there was Plato. He could grow a decent beard, but actually, he was really into his hair. There's various accounts of him talking about what is appropriate and what is cool for a philosopher to have with their hair. And then there was this guy, Aristotle. And I can't find anything that he said about hair or about beards except all the sculptures that I've looked at of him. He looks pretty awesome. He's got a great haircut and a really cool beard. But Aristotle was a philosopher who wanted to understand this fundamental question that he put out there. How shall we live? That was his big question 2,300 years before, before today, ago. How shall we live? And he and other philosophers concluded that we have got to live a virtuous life rather than a life given into the flesh, a life marked by vice. We've got to be virtuous. And for the next few hundred years, they sort of hammered out what a virtuous life really looked like. The church comes along, and the church picked up this discussion, and the church concluded that there were essentially seven virtues and seven vices. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next seven weeks. Seven virtues counted by seven vices counted by seven virtues. And then the question is: well, if we know how should we live a virtuous life, not a life marked by vice, how do we do that? How then shall we live this life of virtue? And for us who are Christians, we look to Jesus. And He's the only one who ever managed to live up to it. If we want to know what the virtuous life is, He models it. He is our example, and He is our inspiration. And so over these seven weeks, we're going to be looking a lot at Jesus because He is the one who reveals how we should live. But more than that, through His death, and his resurrection, and through his ascension, and his sending the Spirit, he enables us to live a life of virtue. Life, Virtue is good living, and a vice is bad living. And Jesus lived the virtuous life, and he's given us the means through the cross and the power of the Spirit to live like him. Now, today, we're thinking about the first couple. The first um, vice today is pride. And the first virtue is the opposite of that. It is humility. Now, not all pride is wrong. Years ago, when I was a, a student chaplain, an email went around and someone in my chaplaincy group said, why is it? that Simon keeps banging on about his two sons. My two sons now are grown up. One's 23 and one's 20, but then they were just tiny tots. And in every sermon, I would talk about them, partly because they were sort of ready-made illustrations back home, but actually because I was proud of them. And this email (laughs) did the round saying, why does that fat vicar always talk about his sons? It must be because he's trying to tell us that he's virile. I thought, well, actually, that isn't why I'm trying to tell you. I'm just taking pride in my sons. I'm showing off with them, but it's not really as an act of pride in me. I'm just so proud of them. So not all pride is wrong. There is a pride that is appropriate taking pride in a job well done, taking pride in doing our best, not more than our best, but, but doing our best, to be our best, to work hard in our studies, and so on. My utmost, as Oswald Chambers once said, for his highest, I'm doing my best, and all that I do is an, I, I, I'm taking pride in my work, not so that I can swagger and think I'm special, but it's a kind of offering to God of worship, taking pride in what he's given me, thanking him for it, using it as best as I can, but always recognizing that these are gifts from God. So not all pride per se is wrong, but the pride that is a vice, that is wrong, that is damaging, is the pride that puffs us up, and the pride that in puffing us up, puts other people down. The Oxford author, C.S. Lewis, you'll have read the books and watched the films and got the T-shirt and all of that. He said this, pride is looking down on someone or something. And that is the vice that we're to sort of, we're to remove from our lives and replace it with Humility. Pride from comparison has really ugly faces. We can take the wrong sort of pride in our physicality. And there's always a sense of comparison. And we never compare ourselves to better. We and, and well, we can do that and then feel insecure. But pride is where we compare ourselves to those that we think aren't as good as us, so we feel superior to them. We take pride in our physical appearance. I'm better looking than them, or got a better physique than them, or a better accent, or better skin, or better teeth, or I'm a better sports person, or I've got better times at running. Physical pride. Or intellectual pride. I go to a better school, or a better college, or doing a better degree, or getting better grades than you. It's a comparison that puffs me up by putting someone else down. A social pride. This is an ugly one. I went to a better school than you, or mix in a better circle than you, or cooler circle than you. I got more friends than you, and so on. In a religious context, there can be a wrong pride. I pray in tongues. God gives gifts not dependent on your character, and that's why some people who are very gifted are just awful. I'm on the worship team, or Mike Pilavachi prayed for me at Soul Survivor or something. Then material pride, I've got better stuff than you. Or a better job than you, or go on better holidays than you, or live in a better house than you, or better car than you, or better kit than you, or earn more money than you. But it's a pride predicated upon a comparison with others who you think are beneath you, so you put them down to puff yourself up. And this is a vice. And the advice tonight is we don't want this vice. We want the opposite. We're going to come to that. And saints, we don't look down on others, we who follow Jesus. Only God is in a position to look down on others. Let's turn to Philippians. Let's just, let me just make three little points. It's getting late. It's past my bedtime. Look at that. Firstly, pride makes much of yourself. That's what pride does. It makes much of yourself. In verse 6 in our reading chapter 2, he says, talks about Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's an unusual little phrase. You think, why, what's that doing in there? Something to be grasped. What are you on about? Well, actually, I believe it's an oblique reference to the devil. And the devil, and indeed Adam and Eve, right at the start with the fall, grasp. They snatched. They tried to seize at being like God. According to Jewish tradition, the devil was a top worship leader in heaven. He was a kind of archangel, and he was a choir master, and he was responsible for facilitating and orchestrating worship to the Father. Imagine you're the angels, the Father's here, and he was just like a conductor of worship to the Father. But over the eons, according to Jewish tradition, he just rather liked it, and he began to kind of swagger a bit because he was the worship leader. Worship leaders, you've got to be careful, so do preachers and vicars and all, anyone up front. But he be, it, rather than directing the worship to the Father, he, he began to puff and say, so, I'm the worship leader. I'm somebody. And in the end, according to Jewish tradition, he took a third of the angels and rose up and tried to take God's job. He thought he'd be God. He grasped and grabbed at being God and forgot his place and tried to usurp God's throne. And so in our reading from Isaiah 14, it said this, and tradition reckons this is a picture of the devil. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, you morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth who once laid low the nations. Why? Verse 13, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See that? That's what the demonic does. It wants to take the place of God. It wants to receive the worship due to God. That's why the devil said to Jesus, all this I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. It was grasping. And that's the mark of pride. Five times, five lines, one after another, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this. It's all I will, it's the will to power. And it was pride, and arrogance, and grasping, and all those personal pronouns, me, my, I, putting me at the center, grasping for glory, divinity, being like God. True worship puts God at the center. But pride is self-worship, and it puts you at the center. And the devil, he tried it on and got kicked out of heaven. And then he tries it on with Adam and Eve. That's the story right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. A serpent comes and says to Adam and Eve, why don't you eat some of that fruit that God said don't. And they said, well, we've got all this other stuff, and God says we shouldn't eat that. And the devil says, God's been hiding, uh, holding out on you. You need to grasp it. Eat of that, and you'll be like him. This is the devil echoing his own foul nature in human nature. Do it to be like God, to usurp Your place, uh, usurp his place and put yourself there. And we all know what happened. That opened Pandora's box and all hell broke loose. Pride is the chief of these vices. It's the, it's the, the biggest of the serpents, if you like. Vanity of vanities. And there's a warning in that Isaiah 14 passage. You might like to look at it later on this week it goes on and says, after he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, God says, no, you watch what I will. And God says uh, through the prophet, how you have fallen, he says, and been cast down, you've been brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. You, you, you try to grasp and usurp and posture and puff yourself up, take what wasn't yours, but you've been brought, four times it says it, down, 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 down. The Bible says pride goes before a fall. But so often in our human nature, we have an echo of that, this kind of grasping more for ourselves, not content with what God has given us, and in so doing, putting others down. Years ago, I was preaching at one of these Oxford College chapels. I preached at lots of them over the years, but on this occasion, I'd preached, and afterwards, we went in for this really smart dinner, you know, high table, the full wallop, and there was a bloke there, and um, he was obviously not used to being in this sort of context, and he was really kind of playing it up had his glass of champagne and talking too loudly and uh, then at one point he said this i'm not kidding this is true he looks out the window and he went ah the hoi polloi now some of you who've done a bit of greek will know know about that ah the hoi polloi in greek it means the people it literally means the plebs just the commoners Ah, the I'm sat next to the bloke looking out the window. Ah, the hoy polloi. Well, what he didn't know was that hoy in Greek means the. So what he'd actually said was ah the the people, ah the the people. But there was I, a vicar. I just preached, and I had to take a cheap shot at him. I shouldn't have done it. He was puffing himself up at those who weren't eating the proper, you know, the high table and I turned to the, the one of the tutors who I knew to be a classics master I says doesn't Hoi you mean the has he not just said the the people <laughs> and the don just sort of said yeah but there I was with my dog collar and I suddenly felt oh he put them down and I've just put him down it's what pride does it puts others down in order to put yourself up and it's a vice and it's got no place in our lives as followers of Jesus. That's the first thing. Let's move quick. Second, if pride makes much of yourself, humility makes much of others. And we see this here in verse 7 about Jesus. It says, he made himself nothing. Nothing. You can underline that in your Bible if you like. He made himself nothing. Like nothing, of no consequence, of no substance, nothing, but took the very nature of a servant, the Greek is slave, being made in human likeness. And here's this mystery. The devil was a servant who grasped at being like God. But here is Jesus, who is God, who is giving it all up, in order that he might be a servant. This is humility. Humility doesn't look down on people. Humility bows down to help people. Humility stoops and goes lower. It doesn't put itself up to put down. It goes down to help. John Mark Comer, some of you who read him, he's fantastic, he's a pal of mine, His whole theology, his whole sort of message is go slower. We're so busy. We're so giddy. We just miss so much. Just slow down in your rhythm of life and in your walk with God. What a great message that is for us. We've had an enforced go slow this last year. But if we want to understand humility, it's about going low. We're called to go low. And this ain't a popular theme. I can't remember the last time I've heard a sermon on it. And do you know what? I think in 30 years as a minister, I've only preached on it once before. And that's shocking, that is dreadful. Jesus went low, downward trajectory, the high king of heaven becomes a servant from divinity to humanity. It was Donald Trump who said, the new Pope is a very humble guy, just like me. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but Jesus is a very humble guy. Mind-blowing in his humility. You see, Jesus is the only somebody who could look down on, any, on everybody. And yet he looked down on Nobody quite a thought, isn't it? And all through his life, we see this virtue of humility in his incarnation. God, the Lord and creator of time and space, contracts himself to a human zygote, a mass of cells implanted in a woman's womb. How about that for a contraction? That's humility. And his introduction to life, he is born in a stable and placed in a manger, in a feeding trough. We see his humility in his possessions. He had nowhere to lay his head. In his temptations, the devil says, all this I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. But he refuses that. The devil says, why don't you just jump off the temple, everyone will see you, and they'll think you're the business, you'll have instant star, you know, you'll be an instant star. But he refuses that and instead goes the way of the cross. We see his humility in his associations. He doesn't hang around with the the good and the great. It says that the tax collectors and the sinners were his friends. We see it in the humility of his ministry, when he, said, he heals people, he says, but don't tell anyone. He won't blow in his trumpet. And preeminently, we see it in his actions. You know, here he is on the night that he is betrayed at supper with his friends. What does he do? He takes a towel, wraps it round his waist, and washes their feet. No wonder Peter says, no way, you don't wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, if I can't wash your feet, you've got no part of me. And Peter says, what? Wash everything. He says, no, your feet will do. But what was it all about? He said, I wash you. You need to understand this, that I'm here to serve you, to give my life as a ransom for you. This is the way of Jesus. This is the virtue of humility. How do we we counter humility? Pride, Not by going after pride, but by investing in humility. How do we get rid of darkness? We don't go after darkness, we turn on the light. And so in order to remove pride in our lives, we invest in this humility. And Jesus preeminently modeled it. How are we to live virtuous life? How does that look like? Jesus. How are we to do it? He gives us the power of His Spirit to do so. Pride puts yourself first, but humility puts other people first. This week, Prince Philip died. Uh, He was a a royal crown prince of his own right, prince of Greece, and he had had a distinguished, decorated for bravery, uh, military career in the Navy. Marries a shy princess. Within a few years, she's the queen I don't know if any of you have seen it, but in the fictional series, The Crown, there is a scene when the queen is being crowned at a coronation. And they've written this into the story, except it's an utter fabrication. In the story of the crown, they, they make him say, I won't kneel before you. I'm not going to kneel before you and she says oh go on you know it's not kneeling before me it's kneeling before and so on i mean it's a brilliantly written brilliantly acted um drama but it's nonsense the reality is that prince philip for 74 years loved and served his wife and walked behind her 2.7 steps apparently behind her whatever that is he walked in her shadow and he honored her as a humble servant that's humility. But preeminently, we see it in Jesus. And then lastly, sorry I've gone on a bit, the Father makes much of Jesus. Verse 9, And he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God the Father exalts him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amazing. Jesus bowed the knee and washed their feet. And yet, just a few weeks later, after His death, resurrection, ascension, He ascends to heaven, and all the angels bow before Him in worship. And one day, every living creature will bow before Him. Bees have knees. And those knees will bow before him. Elephants have got knees. And even spiders have lots of knees. And all them knees are going to bend and bow and worship. Jesus, the humble one, the meek one, the servant king, the high king of heaven, robed in majesty, will be worshipped. And the father will honor him. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gifts the humble. He says, whoever humbles himself will be lifted up and exalted. Jesus is our example of humility, but he's also an example of glory. Here's the amazing thing. Pride is grabbing at being like God. It's a grasping for glory. And yet the whole reason Jesus came was actually to give us glory. Pride, that vice, that sin, that mark of the flesh is trying to grab what isn't ours. And yet all along, God in Christ Jesus has wanted to give us his glory and have us seated with him in heavenly places. Don't try and bring glory for yourself. Follow Jesus and let him give you glory. Let and the Father take pride in you. Let me finish with this last little illustration. George Carey, some of you may have heard of him. He, the well-known churchman, he grew up on a post-war council estate in Dagenham and uh, struggled at school and um, but became a Christian in his later teens and and God sort of just pulled things together for him. He joined the Air Force, and then after that, he um, did some schoolwork, and then went and ended up doing a degree, and he became a vicar. And he became a vicar up north in Durham, wonderful city, uh, and a vicar of a church called St. Nick's Durham, great church. And uh, then it was a, it was a sort of struggling church, but his sort of faithful ministry there, it just blessed the church. God blessed it. And the church began to grow and students joined it. And it it, it was a fantastic church, still is today. And a little book was written about his time there. And there's a story in there that always struck me. I read it about 30 years ago. And in this story, it said that attached to the church was some toilets, but they... Kept the toilets open all weekend so that people who were out shopping and in the evening, they were out partying and having a drink and that, could use the loos Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday. And then on Monday, he would come in. And you can imagine what those public loos looked like after a, a heady weekend of students in, in Durham, okay? And on a Monday morning, the first job of the week that he did himself was to clean the Of All the filth and excreta and vomit and everything else that was hanging around in there. He did it. And I remember reading him saying he just didn't think he could ask the cleaner, who they paid, to do it. And so he cleaned the loose. I remember reading that long time ago, and thinking, wow, what a good egg. I don't think I could do that. Flip, you know. I was a butcher before I was a priest. I was used to filth, but, you know, even so. And then one day, I'd been praying whether I should be ordained in the Church of England, whether I should go. I was working as an evangelist for a church. One day, the phone went, and it was someone from our church, and he said, you'll never guess what. The most unlikely thing in the world has happened. George Carey, that was his name, that vicar, has right out of the blue, no one can believe it, they thought it was a joke, been made the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I can still remember where I was, looking out the window in the particular room down in Somerset, and beginning to cry. And and that day I decided I was going to be ordained. Because I thought, wow, God honoured him because he was humble, and if he's going to be the head of the church, which he was for a while, some time ago, then that's the church I want to be part of. There are two ways that we can live, virtuously or with vice. The vice will just me- it's just mess that will mess you up, but the virtue is living like Jesus, and when we do that, we spread the good, and God will bless us